Arsenal for Democracy is available twice a week. There's a free episode at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple or Stitcher each weekend and a midweek bonus episode at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy, available for $5 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. The Gulf Stream waters. This land is made for you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 365, recorded on Tuesday, April 13th, 2021. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. This week's bonus episode is about one of the earliest successful and enduring federal laws on working conditions and minimum standards. We've talked a lot on this show about the complex and often short-lived legacy of progressive worker protection legislation under President Woodrow Wilson and his labor secretary, William B. Wilson. You can refer to episode 335 from December of 2020 for more on that. Many of these new laws were either overturned by the courts, thrown out with the start of World War I, or only existed during World War I for special wartime reasons for about a year and a half or less. Now, for example, in terms of the pre-war legislation, literally a couple days before the Adamson Act that we'll be talking about today, the Keating-Owen Act was passed and signed into law. Keating-Owen, as we talked about on that William B. Wilson episode, was supposed to have established the Labor Department's authority to make surprise inspections of mines and factories and other work sites for the purposes of restricting the use of children as workers for companies doing interstate commerce. But the Supreme Court struck it down 5-4 to four in June 1917 in Hammer v. Dagenhart as part of the Lochner era. We'll circle back to that later this episode. As we noted in episode 335, had that law survived, it would have banned interstate sale of goods by companies employing children at night or for more than eight hours of the day, or employing children under 14, or in the case of mines, children under 16. By contrast, today's topic, the Adamson Act, was passed about seven months before the U.S. entered World War I. As I said, it was passed basically the same week as the Keating-Owen legislation, and it took effect in uh, fully took effect in January 1917, um, although it was still facing court litigation. And then, remarkably, it actually survived a March 1917 Supreme Court ruling and survived World War I, and then remained in effect for railroad workers until 1996. So, what was the Adamson Act, and why did it happen? And then later on in the episode, we'll talk about why the Supreme Court ruling was so unusual. So, the Adamson Act, also known as the Eight-Hour Workday Act, was emergency congressional legislation on the hours and wages of interstate commercial railroad workers requested by the Wilson administration to avert a nationwide general strike after failed attempts at voluntary arbitration or other voluntary federal mediation. The act mandated by law most of the demands of the Rail Worker Brotherhood unions, mostly for an eight-hour workday as the title of the act suggests. When the railroad owners absolutely refused to negotiate or submit to the mediation efforts of Wilson himself, he felt compelled to act and pass this legislation giving in to what the rail workers wanted as opposed to what the owners wanted. 
Um, and for that particular citation, uh, I went to the book that we previously referenced on another episode, History of the Illinois Central Railroad by John F. Stover from 1975. Now, one thing that I want to talk about on this bonus episode today is the sort of ph philosophical underpinnings of the Adamson Act. So the Adamson Act, uh, I believe, was consistent with Woodrow Wilson's overall strategy of supplanting industrial labor negotiations with fixed written laws. Now, my recollection is that we did an episode way back in 2015 on this point, probably not with Rachel. It was probably with uh, Kelly or maybe Persephone, one of my other past co-hosts. But I think we talked about Wilson's sort of philosophical approach to labor law and this idea that we're about to talk about, about laws versus negotiations when it comes to labor protections. Um, and we were talking in that episode about the post-World War I International Labor Organization, the ILO. But Wilson also used the Adamson legislation uh, specifically as an alternative compromise to a much more dramatic option, which was his mid-1916 threat to nationalize the railroads. Now, ironically, he actually ended up doing that in December 1917 anyway during World War I, and for information on that, I would refer you all back to our specific 2018 episode on the U.S. Railroad Administration, uh, episode 224 from May 2018. Uh, so, Rachel, I wanted to talk a little bit before we get into the Supreme Court case around the Adamson Act about what the Adamson Act and uh, the unsuccessful Keating Owen demonstrates about Woodrow Wilson's philosophy uh, on dealing with sort of industrial labor relations. So I think you can kind of break it into two sort of categories, which were approaches taken by various countries at the time period. So you have the negotiation approach, which is something that actually survived in a lot of Northern European countries, um, even until relatively recently. That's why I, there's a whole bunch of European countries that, despite being world leaders on labor protections, labor laws in general, high wages, things like that, actually only recently adopted minimum wage laws. By contrast, minimum wage laws enter the United States um, in Massachusetts with a special law, governing certain minimum wages, uh, and, and again, dealing with this issue of child labor and, to some extent, uh, women's labor. And that was in uh, around 1913. Uh, so we're talking about a very similar time period here. And then the uh, a permanent uh, federal minimum wage uh, doesn't start until uh, during the Great Depression. But as I said, in many European countries, they had opted instead for the negotiation route. And so you can get these great benefits, these great working conditions and so forth through the strength of these unions and then the sort of social democratic or progressive, liberal, whatever you want to call them, governments uh, kind of act as a uh, middle force between these two entities if there's a conflict that needs extra help being resolved. So you you know, we talked earlier about the voluntary arbitration, things like that. Um, now, obviously, in the interwar era following World War One, there were some other uh, approaches that tended more toward the right wing that tried to even more formally organize society into categories of, you know, worker syndicates and uh, corporate syndicates, and then the government would act as the third force between them. And a lot of those tendencies ended up developing into either directly fascism in Italy or various other sort of fascist-type tendencies in other parts of interwar Europe. Um, less so, obviously, uh, with the 
uh, Nazi party in Germany, um, as they were much more aligned with sort of just straight up corporate interests and privatization and things like that. But when we're looking at the uh, Woodrow Wilson administration, which of course spans directly before World War I and uh, just after World War I, um, we see that he was open to trying the negotiation strategy if you had a powerful union on one hand and a corporation on the other hand. But most of the time he recognized that the unions were simply, they were powerful enough to create some amount of chaos and disruption. Uh, and he could have taken the approach that some of his predecessors who were much more hostile to workers took, which was just to crack down and obliterate uh, strikes as they broke out. Um, but since he and his labor secretary were much more uh, aligned toward the workers and the unions uh, for all of their faults that we've discussed on previous episodes, they felt that the workers unions were not sufficiently strong to actually do much more than have a disruptive strike that then failed. And we've talked on plenty of episodes uh, over the past several months about specific examples uh, of failed uh, attempted strikes, including pretty significant ones, and especially a lot of the ones uh, in the rail industry. Um, the Adamson Act represents Wilson's sort of real philosophy here on how to solve these problems, which is that the government's sort of uh, inter intervention role here is not as a mediator in talks necessarily, although he was obviously still open to that, but rather to affirmatively advance worker rights and protections by force of law. So again, if you don't have unions that are strong enough to actually negotiate these great sectoral wages and things like that, like we see in Northern Europe up until recently when they started having to impose minimum wage laws to preserve those floors, uh, instead, the approach here is to expand the definition of progressive legislation to much more affirmatively include things like minimum wages, maximum hours, maximum work weeks, things like that. This is where you start getting legislation around 40-hour work weeks and 8-hour work days as opposed to uh, that being just something that's worked out between workers and management through negotiation processes. Um, this ends up becoming the philosophy uh, of the ILO, the International Labor Organization that's set up through the Paris Peace Conference and the new League of Nations. Of course, the United States, as we've talked about, did not join the League of Nations uh, due to the battle over that in the U.S. Senate and therefore didn't actually join the ILO. But the ILO's approach was to sort of avert revolutionary communist fervor uh, by passing all kinds of laws to um, create minimum standards and therefore also reduce uh, competing frictions between different countries because, you know, they recognized that in an internationalized era when you had global trade and, and free trade opening up and things like that, if you could just move stuff across the border to a different country that had weaker, uh, you know, labor unions and weaker sort of... Uh, weaker sort of prevailing standards, then that was going to be an advantage uh, for the companies that was uh, not possible to match necessarily by the workers. And so you end up with all kinds of stuff, which even continues to present day, right? You have ILO standards around uh, minimum time uh, for maternity leave for uh, new mothers, which then eventually becomes more broadly amended to parental leave. Uh, should that be paid or unpaid? Um, you know, should there be a minimum number of uh, paid vacation days or paid uh, leave days unrelated to uh, family matters or illness? Um, you know, for example, uh, many uh, 
countries have adopted minimum standards of 20 days a, a year as the absolute minimum guarantee that every worker gets. Notably, of course, the United States does not have that protection. So, Rachel, I wanted to go to you now at this point um, to get your thoughts on this before we get into the Supreme Court ruling. Um, how do you view this uh, Adamson Act as an exemplary of the sort of Wilsonian strategy on industrial labor relations? Well, like you said, it really kind of prevents those like labor disputes and those negotiations that can kind of throw a wrench in in well as as is kind of covered by this act interstate commerce. So there was a lot of labor disputes happening at this time, especially around railroad railroad workers. And I mean, for the most part a lot of unions had already won the eight-hour workday, but there was still a lot of conflict around it and other working conditions. So um, I, I think there was still a lot of strife happening. So Wilson obviously took the steps he took to to kind of smooth things over and kind of create this, this standard for the railroad industry. It's, it is inherently a very moderate strategy, though. It, it verges onto the edge of social democratic approaches, but it's still very moderate at heart, I think. Yeah, I agree. Uh, to us, it I, seems I, radical from a U.S. perspective just because everything's right. so rock bottom here. Right. Yeah, I'm sure uh, um, like European workers were looking at this and, and saying, is that it? <laughs> Much as they do today. Um, but I think it was, yeah, the bare minimum to kind of keep things going on a somewhat even keel. Now, do you find it interesting here, as I did, that this act represents... Um, I mean, I wouldn't call it a capitulation, but essentially a confirmation of the demands from the union, that it was it was conferring a victory, basically a total victory on them. I mean, the railroads apparently thought they were going to, and we'll get to that in a moment, just get it struck down, no problem, by the Supreme Court, which didn't happen. Um, but, you know, they could have opted for emergency legislation that landed somewhere in the middle and said, OK, you make this concession, you make this concession, you get this concession, you get this concession to both sides. And that's not really what happened here. They basically almost everything that the workers wanted, they got. Well, uh, I'm uh, kind of reading uh, the, the Pinkerton history book that we discussed earlier. Um, I think uh, last year we discussed it. And it's just kind of amazing how much like strike action was happening around this time. So I think uh, labor at that time was so assertive and kind of really uh, willing to strike to get their way. So I'm wondering if that really is what what caused this act to fall the way it did and gave the workers so much of what they wanted is just because they were willing and able to to start these strikes and, and really throw a wrench into commerce at this time. So let's discuss how the Adamson Act actually survived the Supreme Court, which was kind of surprising. Uh, again, as a reminder, uh, Keating Owen, which covered eight hour workdays and other issues with regard to child labor in mines and factories, that was passed at the same time, struck down, unlike the Adamson Act, uh, a few months later in June of 1917. Um, what do we need to know about what happened at the Supreme Court, which was very unusual uh, for the time period with the Adamson Act? Right. So as you mentioned earlier, the, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the law in March of 1917 in Wilson v. New. Um, and this was summarized on 
uh, justia.com, which summarizes U.S. Supreme Court decisions. Um, and it, well, it was actually, upheld- the summary is from the court. The syllabus oh, is right, from the yes. court, yeah. Yeah, well, we're referring for, to the, the summary on justia.com. It was upheld on fairly narrow and flimsy pretexts, but it did keep it alive. Although I'm sure they couldn't have foreseen that it would have been around into the 1990s. Um, so quoting from the syllabus accompanying the, the opinion rather than from the opinion itself, um, the court argued that Congress had acted in emergency circumstances to avert a nationwide quote-unquote calamity of a brewing general strike because the workers and owners had been unwilling to reach an agreement without the intervention of Congress, which might be why the Keating-Owen Act was struck down. Uh, children weren't really unionized at that time, whereas the railroad, railroad workers were pretty heavily unionized. So that might be part of the reason why this act survived, but the Keating-Owen Act did not. Um, so with the Adamson Act, the court was willing to entertain the, entertain the possibility, unusual at the time, that Congress did actually have substantial con- constitutional power to regulate interstate commerce, but claimed that this was limited in its, quote-unquote, extent by the nature of the type of commerce and the, quote, appropriateness of means, which they believe was fine in this case because the emergency conditions were some kind of constitutional trigger to access full constitutional powers that might otherwise be constrained. Um, So this seems like a bizarre view to take, given that the Constitution doesn't in any way specify any kind of restrictions on congressional authority, quote, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states, unquote. Um, One of the dissenting opinions even claims that Congress lacks this power because the constitutional framers couldn't have imagined commerce in 20th century terms. Uh, The court argues in their 1917 decision that the Adamson Act was only permissible because it was an essential regulation for the protection of the public right, since either a general strike or a nationwide lockout would have affected the general public's interstate commerce activities. So this ruling is somewhat of a departure from the greater Lochner era philosophy um, that we have discussed previously in which the court struck down state and federal laws that sought to regulate business. So, um, for example, they struck down a minimum wage law in the District of Columbia, um, the federal child child labor law, um, and regulations of the banking, transportation, and insurance industries. So, although they they mainly wanted to keep the markets free and kind of keep the economy flowing, um, exceptions were made for the, quote, safety, health, morals, and general welfare of the public, unquote. So I think this threat to the public interest in the event of a strike or a lockout was just so great that Congress did have the power to intervene to prevent this labor dispute from happening. So what do you think about this in terms of this departure from the Lochner era? Because I wasn't really familiar with this case. It doesn't seem like it's widely considered to be a major case. Uh, I don't even think there's a Wikipedia page for this case. Again, the the ruling on that is Wilson v. New, issued in uh, March 1917. And I think it was a surprise at the time what the outcome was. Uh, It's not consistent with some of those other rulings happening at the same time uh, on very similar legislation like the child labor legislation under under Keating-Owen. And again, I mean, this survived, uh, you know, with without substantial modifications, 
uh, until 1996. So we're talking 80 years from 1916 to 1996. And again, this doesn't seem to be regarded, maybe because it's such an outlier, as a particularly important case. Uh, And I don't as far as I'm aware, it's not like it was cited as a precedent for, say, upholding New Deal legislation after the um, famous uh, switch in time that saved nine and ended the court packing plan. But what I mean, what are we looking at here? This just it's just, you know, even if you read the full decision, uh, there's just so much that that feels like this huge outlier here, um, where, again, they're they're almost inventing these like de facto emergency powers while trying to then circumscribe this with all kinds of explanations about how actually this isn't, uh, you know, some sort of unimplied emergency power and that we're not making this up, that this is actually okay in this situation, uh, but also not an extraordinary power. It just, uh, it doesn't really cohere together very well. I feel like. Well, kind of skimming over the, the summary, it seems like they're really focused on like wages versus like this eight hour workday. So I think if it had sought to control wages by, by creating a floor, I think the court would have been much more apt to strike it down much like they did like the DC minimum wage law. So I think kind of, I guess they were kind of like hedging by kind of describing how this isn't a wage floor even though they did kind of talk about an example where if somebody works 10 hours for $5 and somebody works eight hours for $5, the person who's working 10 hours is really making less money. But um, I guess by, by creating this eight hour work day, they felt they weren't taking too much from the owners, from the railroad owners. So I think, I don't know. And, that kind of created that loophole that that they I guess they kind of took advantage of to to uphold this act. So, as I said, this remained in place until 1996 and then there were some revisions. I'm not exactly sure what was changed in 1996, um, but you know, it's not not huge. I mean, the the fundamental underlying uh, stuff basically remained the same. Uh, Rachel, have you ever been on a, a passenger rail train uh, when it, uh, as is colloquially referred to, uh, when the crew outlawed. No, I, I can't say that I have. I've only taken a like 45-minute train ride in my life. <laughs> so I haven't experienced that. So as many listeners know, I, I've been on uh, transcontinental train trips and um, train trips across uh, much of the continent uh, many, many times. Um, uh, you know, probably 20-some-odd times. Um, for sure. I, I could be even higher than that uh, if I went back and counted through all of the ones that, you know, went to someplace like Oklahoma and back and didn't actually finish crossing the country. Um, something that I have experienced on more than one occasion is is when the train crew uh, outlaws, which means that they got to the end of their, their eight hours. And there are certain kind of loopholes where you can, you know, have the crew uh, take a break in the middle if there's another crew that can take over for them uh, and they can work, you know, a combined eight hours within a longer period uh, with that break in the middle. Uh, but but altogether, within whatever period it is, is regulated, we, we're still operating under that provision. And this is a major contrast with the trucking industry, um, at least in, in practice, which of course, you know, then leads to all kinds of reasonable safety concerns around the trucking industry. 
on the railroads, if you have a crew that outlaws, meaning that under the terms of the law, they have exceeded their eight hours, they will stop the train basically at the nearest road uh, and they will get off the train and they will leave it there. That is true for freight trains. That is true for passenger trains. Uh, and they uh, and this was certainly, you know, as I said, under the same exact legislation, basically unchanged uh, until 1996 that we were talking about from 1916. And so then, you know, uh, another crew will drive up from the nearest location, uh, get on the train and take it to its destination eventually. But you can end up uh, stuck in the desert for quite a while sometimes. Um, I, I was on a train one time, as my dad was reminding me before we were recording this. We were incredibly late getting into our destination in Southern California, and they were about 10 miles outside the city uh, at the end point of this route, and they just decided to pretend that they, you know, couldn't read their watches and couldn't hear the uh, crew that was chasing them uh, by vehicle on the ground uh, to catch up with them and take over because they knew it was going to just be a huge hassle and delay. But generally, we don't want that to happen, right? We want people to get their their eight-hour limits properly handled because we want them to be operating the train safely. Um, and it is it is remarkable to think about, you know, before this legislation was passed in 1916, um, you could very easily have situations where rail workers were working uh, more than eight hours consecutively with no break, no time to rest, no time to sleep. Uh, and that could be very dangerous for other train crews, other members of the crew, and in the case of passenger trains, uh, for the passengers on board. Um, so, you know, this is a very important regulation. I think it's an important court case, um, even if it's kind of a weird outlier. Uh, and, and I think that it, again, shows this sort of um, progressive to almost social democratic edge where you say, all right, we're going to try to do some mediation between the, you know, by the government, between the managers and the workers. Uh, but if that fails, we're going to step in and pass legislation to enshrine this in law. Um, but as we also emphasize throughout this episode, it really only works if you have a strong labor movement backing that up as well. Um, that it it is not just a question of having someone come in and deliver uh, these laws from on high. You have to have that credible pressure uh, to be able to put on the the owners uh, and apparently in some cases on the Supreme Court to say, look, sorry, it was an emergency. We had to do it. Uh, your closing thoughts on this, Rachel? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's really interesting that this act survived so long just because over the past like 40 to 50 years, we have seen this kind of chipping away at uh, the worker conditions that have been so hard fought over. Um, so I think, and, and some of the best industries and or like most well-protected industries are those that traditionally had a strong labor component, even if labor um, membership is down or union membership is down over the years. So I, I think it's something to to really look to um, how those like heavily unionized industries have maintained these good working conditions and how we can kind of look to them to, to see what, what's possible. Um, and I, I think we really need to be wary because the eight hour workday has really been eroded over the past few decades. And so the, the eight hours for sleep, eight hours for work and eight hours for what you will doesn't really exist anymore. Um, and it's something that I think we need to start fighting for again. Absolutely. Something that I've thought a lot about over the past few years is that question of, you know, 
should we be fighting for what seems like utopian demands, even if it's things that exist in other countries, or should we be fighting to just get back to what we had in passed into law in the early uh, in the first half of the 20th century um, as as a baseline, you know, get like it would be better to get us back to an eight hour day and a 40 hour work week than start talking about four day weeks. But I don't know, maybe, you know, I go back and forth on that. It's it's hard to kind of know where to come down on that. Um, and lots of different jobs are very different. But we see here a great example where they just said, all right, here's the standard. This is what's necessary for safety. This is what's necessary for labor peace. We're going to sign that into law. And then the court agreed with it. So, uh, all right. Well, uh, Rachel, thanks for coming on this week to talk about the Adamson Act of 1916. Glad to be here.